0: Imagine a world where Christ followers stepped up and answered his call on their lives. Imagine a world where Christ followers put their faith and trust in God unwaveringly and without qualification. Imagine a world where Christ followers lived out God's purpose for them in everything they do. The It's Not My Credit to Take podcast explores the awe and wonder of how God shows up in the lives of strong, principled Christ followers from all walks of life. Get ready to laugh, to cry, and to be transformed. I'm your host Dr. Ed Slover, and I'm a faithful husband, loving father, loyal friend, and an unapologetic follower of Jesus Christ. Welcome to the It's Not My Credit to Take Podcast. Hello Katrina, how are you today?
1: I'm doing wonderful. I'm glad to be here.
0: I'm glad to have you. You are officially the first woman on the It's Not My Credit to Take Podcast. Oh wow. Wow,
1: well that's a that's an honor. I, 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 I guess I need to set the bar then,
0: huh? <laughs> Your story actually definitely sets the bar really high. I was, I felt a pull. I said a prayer, and now I've pivoted the podcast and open it up to include all Christ followers. So I'm really excited to have you. My guest today is Katrina Robertson. After serving on the jury for a murder trial, Katrina was charged with contempt of court and endured months of trauma, the threat of jail, and thousands of dollars in fines and legal fees. From this experience, she published a book called Juror Number 11, a memoir of the broken justice system and rising from the trials of life, which went on to win a gold medal in the nonfiction book awards through the Nonfiction Authors Association. Katrina's book also became a finalist in the Memoirs and Autobiographies category through the International Book Awards. Today, she calls Hot Springs, Arkansas home, where she serves as a chief compliance officer for a local wealth management company. She's done that since 2007. In addition to her work, she's a volunteer and advocate for children in the foster care system and plays an active role in her church and community. Katrina has been married to her husband for 27 years, and together they have two biological children and three adopted children, two from foster care and one as an adult. Katrina, welcome to the It's Not My Credit to Take podcast.
1: It's good to be here. That's a, you know, when somebody introduces you and reads it all out, it's like, gosh, is that, is that me? I I don't, (laughs) I feel like I'm just more of an average kind of person than all of that.
0: It's you. It's you. So why don't you share with the audience a little bit more about your background and how you ended up where you are in your life?
1: Right. So, you know, like you had mentioned, um, you know, my husband and I have been married 27 years. My my husband served on staff in churches for 20 plus years and then um, uh, actually as a chaplain at a hospital now full time and like you mentioned we uh have five children in total two biological three that we adopted and i've always had a uh just a a heart and a pull towards oh kind of uh the voiceless in society a lot of times that that's children and i've always played a very active role in different volunteer capacities i was a casa for for many years a court-appointed special advocate and And then moved on to foster and then adopt. But anyway, I had always been very trans. You know, adoption obviously is a beautiful thing. And we all loved loved hearing the amazing uh, miracle stories within it, uh, the rainbows and the feel good adoption stories. But the reality is adoption comes um, from loss and brokenness and grief. And there's a lot of really hard and ugly, especially in uh, when you bring kids that you know my my kids were um, eight, nine, and seventeen when they came to so a whole lot of trauma, and um, the the damage that that does to to a child is sometimes uh, seemingly just irreparable. And I was throughout our journey. Uh, with our boys, they're all three boys, I was very transparent about, you know, the hard sides of it on my social media. And I, over the years, had people uh, reach out to me and say, gosh, you really need to write a book. Um, and I, I was kind of like, gosh, I don't have time for that. And, and besides, I don't know <laughs> who wants to read all of my heartbreak. Um, but so then last year i was again going through some pretty significant just um, heartbreaking situations with a couple of my kids and then in the midst of all of it i was called to serve on the jury uh, for a murder trial here in our town and it was kind of like oh gosh i you know um don't know if i have have it in me to to soldier through this um but i did and i It was a very, very uh, overwhelming experience for me, kind of the the responsibility of uh, judging another individual and vetting them and determining a sentencing and a verdict was very overwhelming and I did not take the responsibility lightly. But then whenever it was all said and done, um, a few days after the trial, one of the other jurors came back to the courthouse and filed a juror misconduct complaint against me. The defense attorney grabbed hold of that complaint and um, asked that uh, contempt of court charges be filed against me and then also asked for a mistrial to be found, which then began this huge domino effect where it just, I, I don't think even the, the individual that went and filed the complaint expected kind of the debacle it turned into, and so then began kind of five months of my um, hell within the judicial system. I had my own trials and 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 so forth. But when it was all said and done, and the and the case was finally closed, I was like, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna write that book, <laughs> and I it's a memoir. I write it in diary format, and i it begins with the the day in which I got the jury summons and then ends once everything was kind of wrapped up. But I took the opportunity to kind of interweave in some of the the stories of the brokenness and hard that I was also walking through with some of my children and and really the the foundation of the story and the center of it is uh is my faith and that um no matter what life is going to throw at me i'm going to continue to rise and and trust that even though nothing makes sense you know god is still good and and i was a little bit overwhelmed by the you know i i I wrote the book just because i wanted to tell my story but I was a little bit overwhelmed by the response I received of so many people reaching out to me and saying that my story encouraged them, not because they could relate to my exact situation, of course, that's kind of unique. But uh, we've all, if you've walked this this earth for any length of time, we've all had situations where um, we kind of feel like sucker punched by the world, you know, that the, the Rugs pulled out from underneath us, and and you're kind of left going, especially if you're a believer and and you have faith. You're like God, you know what what is going on? You know, like I I I believe you. I I have faith. I I trust in you. And and why are you allowing allowing that? And I and I think my vulnerability and honesty in saying. that I, that I cry the the hard tears and I ask the hard questions and I don't have a problem with saying, God, I'm angry right now. I'm really angry. <laughs> but, you know, the, the, the famous Job scripture, though you slay me, yet I will praise you. Um, and being able to, I, and I think they were able to just say, you know what, um, my situation doesn't make sense and it seems really unfair as well, but uh, I'm going to keep pushing forward. Katrina,
0: what was the basis for the other jury member to file a juror misconduct complaint? And then what was the ultimate outcome of your situation?
1: uh, What was the ultimate outcome of the, you know, so I did end up getting, you know, contempt of court charges against me, um, charged against me, um, which meant I had to go and get an attorney and all that. And he, uh, i go in to sit down with the attorney and i've you know i had been given this piece of paper when we've gone to court you know we we all all the jury members had gotten this summons that's like okay there's been allegations of juror misconduct everybody has to come back um and of course we're all like oh my gosh what in the world you know and everybody has to come back to court the jury members the uh the defense the prosecution even a lot of the witnesses so forth they sequester all of us jury members in a room. We're not allowed to speak, and they bring us out one by one to testify. They saved me for last, which then I was at that point. I was like, "This has to do with me." Um. And uh, they, when they brought me out, I was, um, man, I was uh, slandered and lied about and attacked. It was a very, um, it was a very difficult. To have to sit through, um, but then at the end, you know, and then another piece of the the drama of it is the original judge for the the trial had recused himself from the whole situation, so it was a different judge that had stepped in for this hearing. And she did, you know, even though you know all of the jury members testified, there was only two that were like, yeah, of course, the one that complained, and only one other that said, you know, well, yeah, that. There was something said, or this and that, but it was obvious there was no intent to uh, prejudice the jury or persuade them. It was an offhanded comment that I had made, actually, even after deliberations been made. But even based on that, she still charged me with contempt of court, and um, it, uh, granted the mistrial. So she hands me this piece of paper that tells me when I have to go to court. Um, I bring that to my attorney that I had found, and and I show it to him, and I said, "You know, what does this even mean? Is is, is this like where I go and say um, guilty or innocent? You know what what is this hearing?" And he he said, Katrina, he said, uh, "You've already been found guilty. This is your sentencing hearing, and you're looking at up to a year in jail." And you know that's kind of the moment where you know all the oxygen <laughs> leaves the room, um, and I'm kind of uh dropped into a charlie brown cartoon where i can't really discern anything he says after that um you know and he said uh he said katrina um he says he said are you know and i and i don't know how much time you want to spend on me going back as far as exactly what the quote misconduct was and how i got to that that place i can if you want to spend the time but you know he said katrina has this sort of thing Ever been said and done within juries? He says absolutely. He says you're actually a gem of a juror who walked in there with innocent until proven guilty as your mindset. He said, um, but has a jury member ever gone back and complained after a unanimous decision? He said never. And then to you know top it off, then has a complaint. Complaint then um, caused contempt of court and a mistrial, he says, mistrials just don't happen. It's very rare. Um, He says, so you're kind of a unicorn that we're not real sure what to do with. Um, I very much felt like kind of this pawn in the legal system. (laughs) Um, So it was, yeah, uh, it was, it was crazy. It was a, it was a crazy time.
0: For those listening to your story that have never seen a Charlie Brown cartoon. What she's referencing is the teacher in Charlie Brown that sounds something like wah, 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 where the octagon came out of the room, Katrina, you didn't hear anything else. Right. Yeah. It was, it was
1: just, yeah. And, and I'm sure other people could maybe relate where maybe they um, are sitting in a doctor's office and they give like a a, a terminal diagnosis, and then continue to talk, but you're not able to process anything, or, or, or maybe you get that phone call of some tragedy, and, um, it, you, you know, you almost just kind of go to tunnel vision, and there's, yeah, it was one of those moments. Yeah.
0: What was ultimately the outcome for you? Did you serve any yeah, prison so, time? And what happened so then, with the mistrial?
1: right well so just another kind of um uh i guess a, a a cliffhanger for you to um you'll just have to read the book uh, another just kind of like what in the world is really happening here um the mistrial never happened um and uh, you know they kept pushing it off um pushing it off pushing off and then finally the prosecution the state basically uh put an article in the paper i made front page so many times during those front months it was for those five months it was um it was exhausting but they basically said well um you know because juror number 11 so royally screwed this whole thing up so bad for us and um it would be impossible for us to give the defendant a fair trial now at this point we're going to offer her a plea deal and so it's just kind of like you know again everything's my fault but okay so they offered her a plea deal is what ended up happening um and the plea deal was for manslaughter um as far as what happened to me so i eventually had my trial in court and um it was a very very um, you know the judge had a reputation for being very very ruthless and, and biased, and you know i kind of Hoped that I'd had would have a different experience. But I did not. There's, I, I include court transcripts in the book, and you can kind of draw your own own uh, conclusions there. But after she had a good, a good just um, opportunity to berate me, um, she may, she said, you know, I could give you 30 days in jail. And at that moment, I was kind of like, no, wait a minute. <laughs> My attorney told me a year um you know i've been preparing for the possibility of a year if you're telling me it's just 30 days can i get back up there and say a few more things (laughs) because like 30 days doesn't seem so bad but um you know so did you know and i'm like you know so did my attorney did he say a year to try to um inflict fear in me that of how much i needed to retain him or was he really didn't realize that but anyway it didn't really matter at that point but what she ended up doing is so she um find me the 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 maximum charge for a contempt of court was like 500 dollars. but then on top of that she made me repay all of the you know when you're a jury member you are paid um it, it's fairly minimal. Um, You know, and when you get called for jury duty, you're not necessarily selected. And so, like, if you just get called but aren't selected, you get one right. But then if you are selected, you get another right. And while this was a four-day trial, um, she required me to repay all the jurors their fees. Um, you know, and there was about 50 of them to start with. So it it wasn't a small amount of money, but, you know.
0: You had referenced earlier about having the rug pulled out from under you and being angry with God. Did you find going through this process that your faith in God wavered at all?
1: You know, one thing I've learned about faith is you don't always have a, you can, you can have uncertainty but still have faith. Faith is in your action. Faith is in the doing. Um, you know, did I have my moments where I said, you know, God, um, I trusted you and I thought you were going to fight for me. Um, I I'm upset right now. Did I have those moments? Absolutely. Did my faith in him that he is God and he is good, and he is control ever in control over waiver? No, it didn't. and um, you know, I um, you know, I, I kind of, you know, relate it to, you know, a lot of times, and I and I guess my story is a lot of times people um you you gravitate towards the stories of faith where there are these um great miracles and moments of revelation, and that is um I mean, that's awesome, but when you're um, the, the reality is is that most of the time that isn't the outcome. And that's when that true faith steps in. One of my most favorite, and I think whenever we had like the pre-conversation, I, I mentioned this, you know, one of my most favorite passages is Hebrews eleven, you know, which is kind of referred to as is the hall of faith. Um, you know faith is uh, uh, you know certain of what we don't see basically um, and he lists out all of these heroes of the faith by name and how because of their faith these amazing miracles happened but then about halfway through that passage he shifts gears and he says but then the, he doesn't even list their names because there's so many of them of these people who were, tortured and imprisoned, sawed in two, beheaded, stoned to death. Um, They were destitute and homeless. Um, And it's like, was their faith any less than those who saw the miracles? No, their faith was not any less. In fact, it says, you know, they did not receive the promises, but yet the world was not worthy of them. Because they were the ones that demonstrated that they continued to have hope, despite everything around them, um, did not align with the truth in which they stood on and believed. Um, I also think about, um, you know, John the Baptist. You know, we're familiar with John the Baptist as the one who prepared the way for Christ, right? He was intimately familiar with Jesus and obviously uh, had faith in him. He prepared the way, right? But there came a point when because of his faith, he wound up in prison. And there's a a, a place in scripture where it says that, that John sent word, wanted to have word sent to Jesus. And the message that he sent was basically are you really who you say you are? Are you Jesus? Because it's kind of like, you know, really, you know, I mean, why am I in prison? Are you really who you say you are? Um, I've, I've given my life for you, Jesus. And Jesus's response to him was basically, John, you know, I am who I say I am and you know whether or not um you are miraculously released from prison or not or you know if i if this person lives or this person dies you don't need to worry about that and and of course we know the end of the story john the baptist was beheaded um and his head served up on a platter um so i think a lot of times christians They, um, that if they have faith, everything is going to work out. And I see that as kind of a faith that only, it's a faith only if God is doing what you think he should be doing in your life. And that's not what faith is about. Um, and so it's that, um. Yeah, is that, you know, God can handle our laments, our anguish, our despair, our questions. I I also go to the story of uh, Job. You know, we know Job's story. You know, it was because of his faith that basically his entire life was decimated. And Job absolutely did not walk through that season with a smile on his face and joy in his heart um you know he cried out to god saying you know god doesn't hear me god's blocked me god's out to get me god has slain me and you know is his wife and his friends leave him and accuse him of having uh you know that it's maybe it's his fault he's got hidden sin and he you know um and it's kind of like you know, Job was just an honest guy, but it's hard to be around somebody that's just complaining. It's like, okay, yeah, you've got it bad, but we're tired of hearing it. But, you know, God God could handle it. Um, I, I think sometimes it's more, we think as Christians, we've got to constantly have this like um, a constant attitude of thankfulness and joy and um, and that by saying, this doesn't make sense and I'm struggling right now that that in some way will be a poor reflection on us and our faith. Um, and so I guess my, um, my message and my story is um, no, no, it's not. I think God would prefer to hear our laments you read Psalms; that's pretty much all it is, is um, you know, mainly David crying out. Um, instead, what I think a lot of Christians do is they have nothing uh, positive in the moment to speak to God about, so they just become silent. And I think um, that silence is kind of becomes the manifestation of their unbelief in god and um you know and i and i think it's hold the hope the ultimate hope is that this life is not all there is right um you know our light and momentary troubles are nothing compared to the joy set before us that joy is not necessarily going to be in this earthly kingdom right so that's where our hope and our faith lies. So, you know, I guess that the message is, you know, cry your tears, ask your questions, but don't get stuck there. You know, sit in your ash pile when you have to, um, but stand up, wipe your face and say, um, yet I will praise you. And and that's when you, you rise up. It's, it's just, it's an attitude of mind shift.
0: That's so good. That, that's so good as as you were talking it's clear that y- your faith in god didn't waver so now i'm curious what's your faith in the judicial system and
1: oh my what, based
0: <laughs> on your experience what what flaws well, well first let's
1: just let's just start with um it is it is a um system uh built and ran by man so <laughs> Let's let's say that at the beginning. I walked into it with a very much a, a a belief, a naive belief that you know our judicial system was all about truth and justice. I walked out of it realizing it's more about manipulation and power plays and um you know, just you know, and and ultimately, you know, I was accused of, of breaking a rule. And then there was rules all along the way that were used. Um, And, you know, people ask have asked me all the time, you know, like, what, what are your suggestions for improvements within the criminal jury trial system? And I'm like, you know, unfortunately, I don't really have an answer to that. Because as long as there are um prideful um arrogant you know power hungry men involved and men you know i i I say that as gender neutral um involved in the system who are looking out for their own interests rather than necessarily the um pursuing of truth and justice it doesn't matter what rules you put in place they're going to find ways in which to use those rules to manipulate the system it's you know that's just one of the you know it, we're in a fallen and broken world you know so yeah Patron- i don't have a lot uh so yeah if you if you find yourself in the system a uh, good attorney that's the only advice i have for you <laughs> good attorney
0: were you angry with the juror that made the formal complaint against well,
1: you? you know, so that's, I mean, obviously, yeah, that, I'm like, um, that was um, a little irritating. Absolutely. Um, I did, this juror and I did not see eye to eye during deliberations. And, you know, there was part of me that um, felt like, you know, maybe she went down there to file the complaint um, simply to, you um, make a statement to me because we didn't necessarily agree on um you know how the outcome of the case should go but i i really i i don't think that she really intended it to all derail in the manner in which it did you know of course at the end she ended up being summoned to come back as well so that she could be cross-examined and um you know my attorney was cross-examining her and you know it was like you know why didn't you say something during the trial you know why wait um several days later you know why wasn't it addressed at that time you know and she said well i you know it, it was going to be all of them against me and i didn't want to be viewed as a tattletale i'm like oh my gosh well here we are you know um but um you know, for for lack of you know, uh, maybe sounding a little you know using a political term and and sounding a little condescending, but only way I can kind of say it is I think she was you know kind of like one of the uh, the Karens of the uh, of the jury, the um, you know the mask police, if you will. Of you know, it's like you have uh, you know one of those rule followers. To where again rules are there to um you know pursue justice but um when not used appropriately those it completely miss the the point of the rule you know so i i think she was just kind of like one of those you know like the just wanted to complain about somebody you know i don't you know so do i, do I hold any um Animosity towards her at this point, no, you know, um, I don't. Um, I I think, you know, she kind of ended up in a real uncomfortable situation herself and didn't realize it would, um, it would go that way. You know, it kind of an analogy that I've used as far as like, you know, the rule following. Um, you know, I relate it to. You know like school zones you've got 25 mile an hour or sometimes 20 mile an hour speed limits i mean obviously that's there because you've got children that may not be paying attention and you need to go slower in those zones that's there to protect the kids but if you are so focused on that rule that you're staring at your speedometer the entire time to make sure you don't go a hair over 20 miles an hour that you in fact do run over a child um You know your defense that that i was following the rule is a little bit ludicrous you see what i'm saying it's like okay you've you've missed the whole point here so so anyway
0: it's an interesting dynamic katrina because you mentioned that the juror that filed the complaint against you the two of you didn't see eye to eye and yet there was a unanimous verdict Right. How did, how did that play out?
1: Well, so that's another thing where I just uh, uh, I realized um, the power of kind of herd mentality and group think um, in uh, a jury room. So when so the, the charge was first degree murder was the charge. Um, when we all went back to deliberations and, and began kind of just randomly in and in an unorganized fashion, began discussing different aspects of, of the case and, and different testimony and evidence and that kind of thing, I interrupted and I said, you know, before we, we go down this, this path any further, let's all just take a vote to see where we all stand to see, you know, I mean, how much arguing or discussion we even need to have and so we took a vote and it was um um nine um for guilty on first degree murder and three not guilty myself being one of the not guilty um and the 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 woman who filed the complaint was one of the ones that was on the um, guilty um, and very strongly on the guilty. She, um, you could tell she had a very, um, very much a disdain for, for this this woman. And, um, you know, and I'll back up and say the the defendant was a 60-year-old woman, never been in trouble, piano teacher her whole life. Um, she shot and killed her husband. her Her defense was self defense, so that was kind of the, um, in a nutshell, the, what it was. Um, first degree murder, you have to prove um, intent that she intended to uh, to kill him. Um, I couldn't go there. I could not. There was 17 witnesses for the state and not one of them. They all were there to testify basically to prove that she shot him. And that was never uh, part of the debate. Um, For first degree, we had to prove intent. So we, you know, after, you know, voting, you know, like I said, it was nine for guilty on first and only three not guilty on first. So we continued our deliberations and our discussion and, you know, studying the statute for, you know, first degree um, and second degree. And then we went around and voted again. And when we voted that second time, it was unanimous, not guilty on first degree and guilty on second. And so, um, you know, but she very much uh, grudgingly shifted down to to second um you you know but to me it was you know i had uh the the responsibility i and i'm very vulnerable in the book i was very emotional it was kind of a basket case i'm like you know i mean this is a huge decision and i didn't take it lightly and i felt like we were forced to make a decision with this cherry-picked information and not the whole picture and You know and for nine individuals you know to say guilty on first degree but then just in a matter of about 90 minutes say okay not guilty you know to me it was kind of like wow okay um (laughs) i um you know i would have been willing to go with a hung jury on first degree i just i'm not one that i i don't i don't conform to the group think or or herd mentality whatsoever um And, and to be honest, I really, really struggled even with second degree. Um, but I was forced in this, this position where, um, I had to lay my, my heart and my gut aside and focus only on the facts and the evidence that was presented within that trial. And it was a very hard thing to do, but I, you know, I, I pushed forward and did it, um, you know, but I'm I'm always an honest person, and then I, and then I make a a statement about how much I was struggling with it, and um and yeah, she she decided she'd complain about it.
0: <laughs> so, you had referenced the defendant. Is it true that you've developed a relationship with her?
1: Right. Yeah. So that's just kind of another, you know, uh, I guess you could call it kind of a god twist in the story. So you know, whenever I it was all said and done, and I was like you know what I, I am going to write a book you know i wanted to tell my story I, there was a lot of things i couldn't talk about i couldn't say um, and i wanted people to be able to see things from my perspective kind of walk in my shoes as far as where i was at with um you know why i did and said the things i did and even though in the book i don't use any names at all there's there's no no names uh the defendant Uh, is obviously a central character in the story. So I felt like I should reach out to her and let her know that I was writing a book about the story. And, um, you know, had no idea if I would even get a response or if I did how she would respond. And her response to me was, um, Yahweh has used you to save my life. And I will forever be thankful for him, no matter whatever happens. And so there began kind of a um, dialogue and a relationship. And in fact, um, she uh, now, like I, I mentioned, she's a been a piano teacher um, for decades. She teaches one of my sons piano via you know computer video um, every week. So it's kind of one of those. Um, You know, I I say life, you know, has has handed me a lot of lemons, but I I eventually find that lemonade and that exhale where I say, okay, you know, God, you you are good. You are good. Even though things hurt and are hard sometimes.
0: Yeah. One final question for you, Katrina. You referenced earlier in this conversation, really the trials that you've worked through with your kids. Right how right. are they how are they doing how did they cope with the experience that you've described throughout this discussion like
1: right so how you know they, they <laughs> well well goodness um yeah so that they are additional kind of um hard there it, it's you know that those are are hard and i'll be completely um you know, trans transparent and vulnerable here again. So one of them, he is um, severely um, disabled, and I literally nearly physically killed myself trying to um, make a normal life for him within a family and the community, and that all and it that all came to kind of a nightmarish end. Um, with us um, having to relinquish him to a facility. Um, and he now resides at a facility and it, and there I I was in the midst of that during the season and I have some pretty vulnerable parts of the book where I talk about that, you know. But, um, uh, you know, so with that particular son, I have definitely wrestled the most with with god because it's like you know god you without a doubt led me to this child and i fought the state and the government and my family to bring this kid here to make him whole and healthy and happy and only to be brought to this place where we have no choice but to uh leave him at a facility. And um, I mean, just kind of an ache in your bones, kind of devastation. And probably about, um, see he'd been there for um, about nine months or so. And the facility was having a talent show where the residents were putting on a talent show. And so I went, it's about a two hour drive from where we're at. So unfortunately not able to go there super often to visit, we, we talk every week, but, um, but I go, he wanted me to come to this talent show. So I, I come and I get there and well, he, you know, spots me, says a quick hello, but then scurries off to be with his peers and stuff. And then we go into the auditorium and I save him a seat, but he had no interest in sitting next to me. He wanted to be in the front row with all of his, his buddies. And I sat in the, the back of that auditorium um, while he, um, you know he's he's a very charismatic um kid you know i mean he's he's 20 now but you know think of level of maybe about a four to five year old um as he you know hooped and hollered and and cheered his peers on and then he got up there or his his um uh little uh part in the talent show where he's saying how great is our god and you know i sat back there um you know with the tears streaming down my face um after feeling so much weight of guilt and um failure um of even from like the disability rights organization of of arkansas just kind of um telling me that you know i just feeling like i just didn't do enough and you know sitting back there i was like you know what he's exactly where he's supposed to be and I, I don't know what the outcome would have been had I not stepped in. I, I don't know, but so that's one. <laughs> uh, uh, the other one has been—he is is nineteen. He's my youngest, and um, it's been it's been um, it's been a ride with that one. He is currently um, at uh, in a a place called Job Corps. They're all over the United States, but it's where they um, Um, you know, COVID kind of was the casket for about four of my, my kids, you know, it just, anyway, the whole education system, um, fell apart and those kind of vulnerable, um, kids went with it. But so Job Corps is a place where they, you know, try to train them for a trade and that kind of thing. And he's been there, um, two and a half months, which is kind of, uh, a miracle in itself. Um, I, uh. He's got surgery this week and I've been trying to be all, you know, hands off. You know, he's 19. He needs to do this on his own. I don't need to be involved in contacting the teachers and counselors and all that there. And, but he has a surgery and I wanted to, didn't trust that he was communicating, right. with you know, to get the right days off and all that. He's about an hour from us and I get him every other weekend or whatever, bring home. And um, the, uh, the counselor, I was talking to her and Got the date settled for the surgery. I was like, well, so how's how's he doing? And and she said she said, oh, he's great. He's at class every day on time, and um, his he stays away from the the peers that uh give him a hard time. And I was kind of like, um, his name's Brady. I said, I said, Brady, Brady Robertson. You know, so I'm kind of like, you know, maybe he's, you know, I it he's, you know, he came to us when he was nine, and I if i told you his story um you know it would it would make you weep at what this child had to had to endure and go through um and the the wall that he has that he can't quite seem to jump over as far as faith and christianity he did have it have a moment of you know conversion and was baptized and all that but he still struggles with if God really loves me, why did I have to go through everything? You know, why, you know, and of course I, I was like, you know, but he gave you a family and, you know, opportunity and, you know, but that's, a, that's a hard, a hard thing for some people to, to have that perspective shift. You know, you, you can't stay the victim. So, but um, so I'm holding a hope. The, the, uh, the oldest is, is 25. He's completely independent uh, on his own, he lives in, in Miami. So I'm kind of like, you know, he's taking care of himself. His, uh, his means of income is not the, uh, what I would, I would prefer. Um, you know, but, uh, he, he stays in touch and, you know, I love him, you know, and all I can do is love them where they're at, you know, it sounds
0: like quite a ride. Absolutely. For, for listeners, how can people pick up a copy of your book?
1: Um, Amazon's the easiest place if you search juror hashtag 11, uh, it probably come up with the subtitle is a memoir of the broken justice system and rising through the trials of life. Um, I also have, a, I recorded an audio book for those that are audiobook listeners a uh, full disclaimer i am in no way a professional voiceover so but i it was important to me to record it in my voice so if you're a regular audiobook listener you may be a little appalled by the the quality but i did the best i i could and it is available there i've got a website it's uh katrina l robertson.com you can contact me through there as well so
0: wonderful katrina this has been great Thank you so much for taking time. Before we wrap, would you mind closing us out in prayer?
1: Absolutely, I will. Heavenly Father, Lord, um, I thank you for this opportunity, Lord. And I pray um, for whoever it is that's, that's listening out there to this episode, Lord, that they would cling to you even when nothing around them makes sense, Father that they would hold on to that hope that you do indeed love us, that you do care for us, and you do want the best for us. But this life is so temporary, Father. Lord, I pray that they would be able to just get a glimpse of that hope and that they would hold on to it. And despite when the emotions are hard um, and seem so real, that they would instead choose to stand on the truth of your word even when the circumstances and emotions tell them differently father that's in your name i pray amen
0: amen thank you again katrina i've really enjoyed this conversation
1: yeah me too me too
0: god bless you can contact the show at it's not my credit to take dot com we'd love to hear from you god bless